Good to see you here on Memorial Day weekend. The fact that you're here assures yourself of your election. That's good to know. Um, and I would also say thanks for coming to the class, but you didn't have very many choices this morning, did you? So like, well, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Father, we're grateful for your kindness to us and your son. We're thankful that this morning you've already fed us with your word and with your sacrament. You've not left us to our own devices to try to figure out how that we can enjoy and benefit from your grace, but you've given us means, Lord, toward that end, through the word and through the bread and the wine. And Lord, as we spend these next two weeks together in Hebrews 11, I pray that you'll help the teacher and those who are here to listen, that by the power of your spirit, you'll open our minds and our hearts to perceive and understand your law. And if any of that happens, we will know that it's because of your kindness and your goodness to us. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I did a series uh, in the spring, an eight-week series, down in the assembly hall in the book of Hebrews. I've kind of sort of got Hebrews on the mind. I didn't get to Hebrews chapter 11, so I figured if it's okay with you all, um, we're going to spend today and next week in Hebrews 11, maybe get into Hebrews 12, the beginning of Hebrews 12 as well. Um, I'll give you, for those of you who didn't have any of the class, I'll give you a little bit of a primer on the book of Hebrews here in a second, but um, I wanted to start by reflecting and asking if any of you have been watching Wolf Hall on PBS. Anybody? See who you are out here. Or talk shop for a little bit. Um, Wolf Hall, uh, how, okay, here's even better. How many of you read the book that led up to, I, I have not. Yeah, okay, I hear the book is very good. Um, Wolf Hall's a PBS special that's gone on. It was a six-week special. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping there's week two, I mean season two. I'm assuming there will be. Um, but it's all set in the time of um, 16th, early 16th century Tudor England. Henry VIII is on the throne. Uh, what a dastardly fellow the poor guy is. I, I remember listening to Fitz Allison, who was former bishop of South Carolina, and some lectures on Thomas Cranmer say that you know, Henry VIII is God's punishment to Episcopalians when they forget Thomas Cranmer. Um, you know, Henry VIII is a pretty dastardly guy, but this whole Wolf Hall deal is following the life of Thomas Cromwell. Um, and Cromwell was, and I was reading a little bit of sort of some church histories on the history of the Church of England um, to kind of get my bone up myself on Cromwell. I read a little bit on Dermot McCulloch's biography on Cranmer, but also. Morehouse's work on, um, on uh, the Church of England, the history of the Church of England. You know, in many ways, Cromwell, who, was a pro- who had Protestant sympathies, he was a Lutheran. And if you follow that a little bit in some of the dialogue in Wolf Hall, if you've been watching this, Cromwell um, is very shrewd, but people know that he's a Lutheran sympathizer. One of the opening scenes of the series, he gets a package in the mail. This is before his wife and children die from fever. He gets a package in the mail... And it's an illegal copy of Tyndale's New Testament. That was illegal at the time, the English translation of the New Testament into English. And so he was reading this and was sympathetic with Tyndale. You find that. Um, and so I, I didn't realize this, but Cromwell and Cranmer had a tight relationship, the one with the other. Cranmer was the public theologian, really, of the, of the Reformation in England. But, but Cromwell was the, was the backdoor henchman, you know, doing a lot of the dirty work to make things happen. I don't really want to talk about the whole series, but one of the things that stands out to me watching this period of time is, again, the horrors of martyrdom. 
I don't know if you remember the Elizabeth the first movie that came out, I don't know, a decade plus ago, and the, the opening scene is set there in Oxford, England, when you have Bishop Ridley and Latimer that are being burned at the stake under the, under the, um, uh, the direction of, of Bloody Mary. I mean, there they are being burned at the stake, and it's pretty horrible. Um, if, if for those of you who are, and I'm a Fox's Book of Martyrs kind of guy. I mean, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I, I just sort of absorbed you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs and the stories that were there. Uh, if you remember, I think it was Latimer said to Ridley something like, you know, take heart, dear brother, we will light a flame today that will never go out in England. A lot of bravado. And I think I liked that sort of Braveheart Christianity stuff in my early 20s, right? Now, there's a lot of bravado there. Um, and I think as it goes, I may have the names wrong, but as it goes, uh, R- Latimer d- dies in like 30 seconds to a minute or something like that from smoke inhalation. He dies rather quickly. Ridley, awful scene, right? I mean, the wind was wrong in such a way. It, t- it was like a 30-minute death by fire at the stake. It's horrible. So bad that Cranmer watching from a tower in Oxford, being forced to watch their execution, the way in which McCulloch describes it is, throws himself on the ground in angst and in physical recoiling of what he's seeing, and he recants his Protestant faith. In other words, it's so bad, it's like, I don't want to do that, okay? Um, I think Mary has, has a point. I'll change my mind on that. So. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I, I'm sympathetic, frankly, to Cranmer. I like Cranmer. He's got feet of clay. Um, but we know these stories about martyrdom. Um, Wolf Hall has these things that are shown before us. I mean, heads are rolling. I mean, that's how the sixth, uh, uh, the sixth episode ends with Anne Boleyn. You know, it's just, it's a bad time, right? It's a bad time. And we know that there's a history of this in the life of the church of martyrdom that goes all the way back to the early church with an emphasis on the fact that we, I think we, we identify this quote from Athanasius in the fourth century with an identification that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, It it was a frustration to those who would bring persecution to Christians that whenever they'd bring persecution to stamp Christianity out, often the reverse would happen. Um, They'd come in and they'd bring up persecution of some sort, and then Christianity would get intensified and bolstered, solidified, and it would grow. Um, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We know as well... Uh, that the 20th century, however they get these sort of statistics, but the 20th century, uh, some say are more martyrs in the 20th century than maybe the previous centuries combined. Um, as a chapel of the Divinity School where I teach at Samford at Beeson, um, we have, for those of you who have seen it, we have a dome in there with uh, 16 saints from the history of the church. And then later on at our dean's um, direction, we wanted to add something that represented the 20th century, and there are four martyrs there whose busts are in our chapel who are 20th century martyrs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Romulus Saunier, um, a bishop from um, Africa as well, and, and, and another from Romania who died under Ceausescu and, and during the, the communist regime, all who died because of their faith. Martyrdom. It's a hard topic. And it's what Hebrews is all about. The book of Hebrews is a book that's written to second-generation Christians, probably in the realm of Rome. And it's written to a second-generation group of Christians, and like second-generation Christians can be, 
their religious sensibility, their fidelity to their faith had become a bit dulled and apathetic. And one thing that we know, I think we all know intuitively, is that religious apathy doesn't tend to produce martyrs. Right. And the, the author to the Hebrews is coming in onto the scene, prescient in a way, recognizing that a significant time of martyrdom and persecution is probably coming, especially in the area of Rome. And he was right on this, whoever wrote Hebrews. And he is encouraging these group of believers, these group of second generation Christians, in two big significant ways. The first is, he's wanting to encourage them that Jesus is superior and more lovely than anything or anyone that might draw away their affection and their loyalty to him. Jesus is superior than anything that might draw away their loyalty. And this is how the author spends the first six, seven, eight chapters of the book. Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to any of the kind of mythic religions or mystic religions that might have been vying for superiority in that first, early, second century world, in the Greco-Roman world. Jesus is superior to all of those. He demands your affections, and he, your, the affections that you would give to him, the loyalty that you would give to him, he's worthy of that. There's nothing superior to Jesus. Hebrews begins with chapter 1, verse 1, saying, in the former days, um, the Father spoke to our, our fathers, the Old Testament saints, in many various and sundry ways. But in these latter days, the days that we're in now, the final days, He has spoken us, to us definitively and finally in His Son, in the Son. So in all these different ways, God spoke in previous times to reveal himself, his will, and his salvation. But in these latter days, he is up the ante, and he has spoken to us definitively in a final word. And that word is, look at my son, Jesus Christ. So the author to the Hebrews is coming in onto this, a scene of religious apathy, of dulled religious sensibility when it comes to Christian faith, and he's reminding this group of Christians, listen, Jesus is better he is superior. He's supreme. He's sufficient for all areas of your life, and I'm charging you toward that with a second big theme. And the second big theme is perseverance. Perseverance and faith. Jesus is superior, and the faith that we have in Jesus is a faith that the author of the Hebrews is saying is a faith that needs to persevere to the end holding on to the reality that what Jesus claims about himself and what Jesus offers to us in the gospel, his promises, that they're true, and they're true for us unto the end. Now, for those of you who are with me in the assembly hall, you heard me mention some of this, so forgive me if I'm repeating, but I had a pastor, a friend of mine, I.O., eight years ago or so, um, who was candidating in our church. I'll never forget this. And when he was candidating in the church that we were in, he came and, and presented a sermon and then answered some questions. And, and um, he very candidly said, I've been with some pastors before and they ask me, what is your thing? You know, what's the thing that you're kind of known for? Are you an evangelism guru, right? Or are you a church growth strategist? I mean, what, what's your thing? And he's like, he said, I felt kind of embarrassed because I didn't have a thing. I would have liked one, but I just didn't have one. And as I reflected on what that thing might be, 
It was a kind of low-flying commitment to the fact that my pastoral thing must be, I want people to end their days as a Christian. I want people to persevere. I want those that I minister to, those that I shepherd, my prayer is that for them, they will end their days a Christian believing in the gospel. And then he went on to say something that actually has stuck with me uh, to this day. He said, and matter of fact, I want on my deathbed to have people around me who are telling me that the gospel is true, even on my deathbed. You, you all have been around Advent long enough to know that we use gospel language around here a lot, and rightly so, because the gospel is not just the train ticket to get on the Christian train. The gospel is the ticket, the train, the whole ride. It's everything. And I think that's what that pastor was saying. I'm not just believing in the gospel to get onto the train. I need the gospel to get onto the train, to stay onto the train, and to see that train to its final destination. I need to persevere. My faith, true faith, true saving faith, is a persevering faith that holds on until the end and confesses that God is true and what he has said about his son is true and that it's true for me. One of my favorite portraits of John Calvin, um, and I, I should get an etching of this, but it's, it's, a, it's a black and white um, ink drawing of Calvin on his deathbed I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of these saints before our, our time is over either today or next week, but I like Calvin. I don't know if I'd want to hang out with Calvin. He was a bit dyspeptic, to be honest with you. Um, you know, he, he, if, there was a, if there was a cloud to be seen in the silver lining, Calvin would find it. Um, but, but Calvin, the, the scene is Calvin on his deathbed with his, I mean, it's kind of a painful scene in some ways. He looks emaciated. He's about to die. He's got a head covering on. He's sitting up in his bed, and he's surrounded by people. Well, I've read enough on Calvin and that scene at his deathbed to know that first-hand reports say that what they were saying to Calvin at that moment, this is John Calvin, right? They were saying to John Calvin at that moment were reassuring words of hope about the truth and the verity of the gospel from beginning to the end. That is at the core of what the book of Hebrews is all about. I want to encourage you to realize that Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient. He's worth dying for. That's what he's saying. And number two, I want to encourage you to recognize that the kind of faith that is elicited from that beautiful and supreme and sovereign Lord Jesus is a faith that needs to persevere and hold on to the end. Which raises the question, well then what is faith, right? What is faith? And this is where we get into Hebrews chapter 11. Now, I brought off my shelf, I had to dust it off, I'm embarrassed to say, I had to kind of, you know, blow the dust off. But I brought my King James Version, right? If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us, right? Um, as a joke, Paul didn't have a King James Version. Um, I grew up in a sort of King James Version only world, uh, so I rebelled against it, you know, in my 20s because I wanted things that were new and exciting, like the NIV, which a lot of people would call like the new and accurate version, or um, I, don't, I like the NIV very, very much. People ask me about what Bible translation I prefer. My, my answer is kind of boring, I'm afraid. Whatever one's on your shelf, right, just grab it and read it. No, but I brought the King James this morning because I really like the King James translation of Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. I think it's better than some of the modern ones that I was reading. So th the, I brought it today. I wanted to read just the first three verses. Some of you have this memorized. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. 
For by it the elders obtained a good report. Who are the elders? The fathers from the Old Testament. They obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Those first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11 bring us into the larger themes of what we're about to get into with the rest of this chapter, which is really a walk through the picture gallery of the Hall of Faith. Right? We're going to walk through various portraits, and the author's going to stop and say, you remember Abel? He brought a sacrifice that God was happy with. It pleased God. Uh, do you remember Moses and Enoch and Abraham? And He's going to go through this whole litany of people. He's going to get to the end, and he's going to run out of space. It's a kind of a public speech where um, people realize they have more to say, but the time has escaped them. So then he says, I don't have enough time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, men who were uh, cut in half, who were uh, driven asunder by wild beasts. And then he begins to go into this litany of other people who were martyrs or those who had um, persevered in their faith. So he's moving us into the picture gallery, but, oh, I wasn't even planning to use this illustration. But right now we're in the foyer, right? We're, the, we're in the front entrance of the Birmingham Museum of Art. And before we move in to see the paintings, the curator is stopping to say, and by the way, before we go in, I want to explain something to you about these portraits we're about to see. Faith, and the faith you're about to see modeled in all these exemplars around you, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. I want to spend the majority of my time this morning with you talking about that one verse. Because it um, it is a juggernaut of a verse. It's a huge verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, some of the modern translations say faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I, that's, that's okay. But I, this is one of the reasons why I like the King James Version here. Faith is the substance. Now, I'm going to drop a Greek word on you, so forgive me. But the Greek word here is hypostasis, Or, in the Latin would be persona. Um, it's an actual substance. Faith is the substance. It's the material entity of things hoped for. Now this is a verse that many of us are familiar with, but as I was thinking about this for this morning, there are aspects of this verse that I still find surprising. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You used that word this morning, substance, by the way, maybe unwittingly, but we use this exact word in our Nicene Creed. Jesus is the very substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, of one substance with the Father. Whatever we want to say about God and what God's godness is, Jesus has full claim to that as well. He and the Father share the same divine essence, the same substance. I crawled into bed with my youngest son, Franklin, three or four weeks ago, and uh, I said, Franklin, let me ask you a question. He's five. I said, Franklin, do you believe in God? And he said, yes, I believe in God. I said, Franklin, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, they're basically the same, right? <laughs> and I thought, you know, that just won't cut it. I didn't get onto him, right? But I'm like, that, you know, from the fourth century, that would have gotten you into a lot of trouble. That word basically gets you into a lot of trouble in the fourth century. He's not basically, they're not basically the same. They are full stop the same, right? It's a substance claim. Whatever we claim about the Father, whatever we claim about the Son, 
and whatever we claim about the Holy Spirit, they share together in an eternal cooperation of selves. They share the same divine essence. To speak of God, this is, I love the way, by the way, Craig Smalley begins most of his sermons, if you know this, in the name of one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I think that's, that's well said. Are you here, Smalley? Oh, he's smoking a cigarette out back, I think. Um, he, he's had a big weekend. Um, so anyhow, um, th- 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 that language of substance here is, is not used very much in the New Testament. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. It's an objective thing that we do not necessarily have now because it's a future hope, but faith makes that future hope a substantial and real and present reality even now. It's not ethereal. It's not a mere idea. It's a hypostasis. It's a thing. It's a substance. It's something that's real. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the next phrase that it says is, and it's the evidence of things not seen. So it's the real deal. It's the real material substance of things that are hoped for, that we look for in the future, that materially might not be present to us now in the sense that we grasp it, but our faith makes that future reality a substantial presence now for us. There's a now emphasis here. And it's also the evidence for us of things that we do not see. Faith is the evidence, it's the assurance of things that we don't see now. Let me give you a quote here from a commentator named Lane. Faith demonstrates the existence of reality that cannot be perceived through objective sense perception. Faith assures us of the reality of things that cannot be perceived through empirical or sense perception reality alone. Faith assures us that those things are true and that they're real. Um, I've been reading a little bit. Um, it's extremely boring. I'm, I have to do it. It's part of how my job, I guess. But I've been reading a little bit on 19th century German idealistic philosophy. Lord help us, right? Um, but as you move into the middle part of the 19th century, a controversy arose in Germany, and it's a controversy that I think we feel to this day, and is referred to as the materialism or the materialist controversy. The natural sciences had arisen to such a state in Germany in the 19th century that really the philosophical disciplines in the various universities had to make a proof uh, approve their case that they really should even exist anymore, right? Why? Because the natural sciences were just giving everything that people needed in the public sphere, and philosophy seemed ethereal and, dista- and unattached. And one of the natural outcomes of this was a move away from thinking about the world of ideas into the world of matter, so that matter and material world, the scientific world, is all that there is. And it was a huge controversy. And you know people like this, don't you? materialists who believe that this world and the world that we're in right now is all that we have. It's all that there is. There was a guy in the Bible like that, wasn't he? Got all of his stuff into a barn, got everything sealed away. He says, well, let me eat and drink because tomorrow I'm going to die. And God says, that's not quite how it rolls, right? That's a different translation, but that's what God says. Um, This is the challenge here. The challenge with faith 
is faith provides for us the evidence of things that we do not see. Um, I, I, I got to preach in the evening service of Advent, I don't know, maybe a um, couple months ago, and I made reference in that sermon to a song that I saw at the end credits of Mad Men. I, I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not proud of the fact that I've watched all of Mad Men, but I have. Um, and I find that these, uh, the ending music to, this, to Mad Men uh, functions as an interpretive lens, really, on what you just saw. It's, a, it's very, very fascinating. I'm sure master's theses are being written on this. But one of the seasons when Don Draper, the main character, who's an existential mess of a person, right? Um, one of the episodes ends when he has, pers- he has pursued every avenue of pleasure possible, right? Um, the episode ends with him looking with a blank stare down a hallway. You go to a black credit, and then it's Peggy Lee singing her 1969 song, Is That All There Is, right? And you want to know about a haunting, depressing song. Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is is a depressing song. Um, I saw my house burn down, first verse, I saw my house burn down when I was a little girl, and I thought my whole life was up in the air, but then I thought, is that all there is? If that's all there is, let's have a party and drink a booze and have a good time, because if that's all there is, well then that's not all there is. Then the next verse is, you know, I fell in love with a boy, and then he left me, and my heart was broken, and I thought I was going to die, but guess what, I didn't die. And then I thought, is that all there is to love? Well, if that's all there is, let's have a party, let's dance. And it's all set to this kind of, uh, you know, um, Betty Boop music, you know. Is that all there is? It's a, it's a haunting thing. And a materialist looks at our world and says, or even a nihilist, and says, that is all that there is. And the author to the Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the evidence of things that aren't seen. Hebrews chapter 11 is a gargantuan response to Peggy Lee's insistence that this is all there is by saying, no, this is not all there is. The material existence that we live in now is not the sum total of reality. In fact, faith itself is the evidence of things not seen. Now, I wanted to say one more thing about this before I press on. As I looked at this text again, preparing for this morning, what surprised me was the syntax of the words, the way these words come together. It doesn't say faith is a faith that assures itself on the basis of things not seen. It doesn't say faith puts its trust in things that are hoped for in the future. What it does is it uses that small verb to be and actually equates faith itself with the substance with the evidence. That's how it goes. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. I believe what the author to the Hebrews is saying here is, you can be assured that the truth of the gospel, that God's saving promises to us, which might not be experienced right now, but they are truer than truth itself. You can be assured of that. But your only purchase and entry into that, that makes those future realities a present, a present existence for you, is faith. Belief. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Because it's that kind of faith that's saving faith. It's that kind of faith that gives someone the courage and the hope to face a martyr's end. 
or if I can be maybe less melodramatic than martyrdom, it's that kind of faith that allows someone to stand in a cemetery racked by grief and confusion because the timing is all wrong and to be able to say with, through brokenness and sorrow, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Not because we're removed from the angst of this world. They weren't in the first century. This was under a very difficult time of Roman rule. They weren't removed from the angst of the world. But what the author to the Hebrews is giving them is a future hope that's substantial. It's evidential. It's real. It's objective. It's not just my own subjective wish projection, as they also said in 19th century German philosophy. Who is God? God is the wish projection of humanity. And here you have someone like the author to the Hebrews saying, God and the hope of the gospel and the future promises are not mere wish projections or the construction of human ideas. It's real. It's substantial. It's evidential. And how do we gain purchase on it? Only through the gift of faith that's given to us by the Holy Spirit and a faith that perseveres to the end and says that's true and it's true for me. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, and by the way, that's how the elders were saved too. Who's he talking about here with the elders in verse 2? Old Testament saints, right? How are Old Testament saints, how do they get into the kingdom of God? How do Old Testament saints, if I can use my, my uh, upbringing Baptist language, how do Old Testament saints get saved? Right? They get saved the same way you and I do. By a hope in the future promises of God for the salvation and redemption of humanity through his own grace and goodness towards his people. Abraham's getting in the same way you and I are getting in. By a look away from ourselves to the assured promises and hope of our Savior and our Lord. And that's where we move from here, from Hebrews chapter 1 in the foyer of the Birmingham Art Museum to tell us what faith is. That faith itself is our entry point it's our means of participation in the very substantial promises of God that are future in nature, but present now because of faith, from a looking away from ourselves to the assured hope and promises of our Lord. And what does he do to encourage them? He starts taking them into the museum and he says, and by the way, let me tell you some people who, who might model some of this for you. You remember Abel? Abel gave a sacrifice to God because it's, what the, it's the sacrifice that God asked for. Well, what, what's the point here? The point is a claim about faith. In other words, Abel said, I will believe what God said and I will follow through on it. I will believe what God has said and I will do what he says. And by the way, and he goes on to say, and Abel, even though he's dead, his blood continues to cry out into this moment. So he goes to Abel. And then he goes to Enoch. You talk about a mysterious figure. I think the author of the Hebrews likes these mysterious figures. Spends time with Enoch. Spends time with Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? We don't know. Some guy that just shows up on the road with Abraham and blesses him, and then he's gone. It's like, well, who is Melchizedek? Um, and then you have Enoch. Well, what's the story of Enoch? It's very short. Enoch was a righteous man. He walked with God. Next verse, and he was not. That's the King James Version. God just took him. He's gone. I've got a colleague like that, by the way. Um, 
I've got two. Are you ever around people like this um, that make you very aware of your sinfulness? I mean, I've got, I've got two colleagues that are like this. I, I won't say their names so I won't embarrass them, but whenever I'm around them, I become very self-aware of my humanity and failed character. I wouldn't be surprised if one day I show up at Beeson and they're just not, right? They're just they're gone, right? Well, he was working there today, but he's, now he's gone. Um, hey, we go to Enoch. Enoch was just gone. Um, what are the other examples that we have here in Hebrews 11? Um, ver- uh, they move us to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Pleasing God. How do we please God? Our 39 articles are very good on this. We please God in a posture of faith in a belief and in a hope that his promises are true. And that's where we're going all throughout the rest of Hebrews 11. Abraham was called. Where was he called? To a place. This is what it's going to say. Well, where? He didn't know. Matter of fact, he didn't know to a point that he left all of his possessions in Haran to follow the will of the Lord and never owned any plot of land other than the burial plot that he buried Sarah in at the end of her life and toward the end of his as well. He was called out and he went, not knowing where he went. Why? Because he believed in the one who was building a better city, whose builder and maker was God. He left the riches of Haran to live the life of a Bedouin because he believed in the future promises of God. And the same for Moses, and the same for the, all the litany of other hosts and pictures that we'll see as we move through Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know how you feel about reading of the saints of old. Um, I think there's a lot in the Bible that challenges us, or at least authorizes us and encourages us to read about those who've gone before us. Now, I'm going to give you a warning, if you don't mind. I would encourage you to read for inspiration, not necessarily imitation, right? Now, I, I kind of went through a phase um, in my early 20s, maybe late teens, where I began to read a lot of Christian biography. Um, I read David Brainerd's um, uh, journal. I don't know if any of you have read David Brainerd's journal, but it basically spawned... When, when Jonathan Edwards published David Brainerd's journal in the uh, uh, late 18th century, early uh, late 18th century, when Jonathan Edwards published that journal, it spawned the modern missionary movement. It's actually incredible. But I remember reading that journal. I mean, I thought, like, man, Brainerd must have been bipolar. I mean, I don't know. I mean, one day he is just, you know, on top of a mountain with Jesus. The next day he wants to die. He's back and forth. So I thought, well, I need to kind of get bipolar. You know, I got to get that way. Right? Because like, I'm, I'm not really hardwired that way. You know, so I, like, I need to try that. Don't read for imitation, right? We read for inspiration. And also a recognition, and this is what I appreciate now that I'm at the particular age that I am, I, I'm glad to read that these famous martyrs that we know about or these famous saints who've gone before us, they were people with feet of clay. We're not talking about people walking around with halos on their head. I mean, I, we, we can tell you stories about Martin Luther. We can tell you stories about John Calvin. We can tell you stories about 4th century theologians that would make the hair on your arm stand up. They did what? Right? They said what about who? Um, so we're not talking here about people who are necessarily always moral exemplars, but what are they examples of? They're examples of people who have persevering faith. And it's good to be reminded of that. A persevering faith. A faith that recognizes that from now until the end, the assurance and the hope that I have 
is a hope that looks away from myself into the hope and promise that's secured and fastened in another. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that that aren't seen. Well, you want to fire any questions around? I don't know what time it is. Oh, yeah, we have time for a few. Jerry, we got one on the front row here. Not you, Jerry. I wonder if I have this right. Uh, I see Hebrews 11 as a kind of playing out or pounding on Jesus' answer to the lawyer. How should I pray? Not that believe that you will get it, but believe that I have got it already. I've not made that connection, but that kind of associative reading between those texts probably has a lot of fruit to it. I, I just I haven't made that connection myself, but I think there's probably a lot of fruit there. Um, I mean, I think really at the heart of Hebrews 11 is a kind of claim that um, faith itself is a faith that looks toward the future promises despite current situations, current situation. And I hate to use the term relevant because I think it has a kind of quasi-Marxist sound to it, but I think. Um, there's nothing probably more relevant for us in our current day-to-day existence is there than a recognition that the future promises of God are true and real despite the current circumstance that I'm in. Don't, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like that's at the core of the, the struggle to be a Christian. Right? Is, a, is a belief that what God says and what God promises is true despite the fact that my experience right now is screaming at me double barrels, right? That this is, this is, that cannot be the case. Yeah. And Jesus is getting at that, I think, as well. Yeah. If my five-year-old son had, had answered your question about Jesus instead of saying uh, you know, that Jesus and God were basically the same, if he had said, "Well, they're substantially the same," would that have been a correct answer? I would have. I would have rewarded him, <laughs> and then I've told him, "You can remain my son now." No, no, no. Um, yeah, it was the adverb that got him in trouble. I didn't say anything to him. I'm just using that. I've, I've just said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but yes, substantially. The adverb was the problem. Yeah. All those saints, that the roll call of faith that's in Hebrews 11, David, Abraham, you can just go on and on. They are all murderers, lecturers, you know, angry people. Um, and I found that very encouraging as well. We don't fall into the trap of, you know, we, we have belief and all of a sudden we're saved. Yeah, that's a good word. I mean, it, it, again, they're, they're not being presented to us in Hebrews 11 as necessarily moral exemplars. And that, that's one of the difficult interpretive sides of, of, of getting into the Bible, really, and, and the Old Testament as well. You know, you have narrative presentations of people like David and Solomon that are doing some pretty dastardly things. And just because you have a narrative presentation of something doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is giving an imprimatur on that. or make, Even silence doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is saying thumbs up, thumbs up. It's, you know, we have, one has to be very careful about how one moves a narrative into our world. 700 concubines, I mean, why 300 concubines? That's not a really good idea, I don't think, Solomon. Um. Mark, um, faith is what gets us through it, but faith is a gift of God. What is our role? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. it's um, I, yeah, I mean, I think. 
I think there's a sense in which uh, Philippians 2 gets at the, at the dialectic that we feel here. I mean, there's a sense in which, um, not even a sense in which, but faith itself is 100% a gift of God. It's not something that's generated by ourselves. We don't generate faith. We don't do that. Um, it's a gift because dead people don't generate faith. Now, and, and shame on me for not mentioning that um, uh, um, with double exclamation points on a day of Pentecost. I mean, we're in Pentecost, right? I mean, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's sustaining of us and our faith is at the heart of what it means to persevere. Because I don't, we don't stand, I mean, if I can use this, we don't stand before the judgment of God, throne of God, and say at some point, um, I got myself on, to, on, you know, in by faith, or you got me in by giving me faith, but I, I kept myself in this by persevering to the end. It's not that. It's all a work of his grace and his sustaining work. But at the same time, right, here's Paul saying, you work out that salvation with fear and trembling. There's a call to reflection. There's a call to um, faithfulness, right, and, and, and obedience, right, that is ingredient to this gift of faith. Um, faith that leads to and produces works, right? Now, I think people forget this because I'm a Reformation person. I've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. I, I love the magisterial reformers. And I'm a justification by faith alone person till the day I die. I think it's crucial and central. But I often think people forget that one of the major discussions in the period of the Reformation, this is all, all the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, all of them, Cranmer, was also, well, how do we give an account, a theological account of good works? Because works don't save, we know that. But what is the role of good works in the life of a Christian? That, that is a crucial question that's being raised in the Reformation period as well. Um, so I would say the, the, the question about human agency and what it means to be in a situation that we, that we put ourselves in a place to benefit from God's grace as it bolsters our faith, I'm old school on this. All right? Now I realize other people might say different things, but I, I would say I'm a big believer in what, what the magisterial reformers often refer to as the ordinary means of grace. Right? There is a call for us to have our faith nurtured and encouraged and strengthened by preaching, the teaching of God's word, and the sacramental and prayerful life of the church. Right. Um, you need to be in church. And I know this sounds sort of very basic, but you want to say, I'm, I just want to say, I'm talking to the choir, you're all here, right? Um, but you need to be in church. You need to be in a place where we open ourselves up to the community, communal life of God and his people, so that we're hearing the word, we're feasting on the word, and we're not leading a f into a faith that's emaciated because it's not being nourished. Right? So that's a call to human agency. It's a call to human agency. But in a recognition that even in that call to human agency, that is a complete work of God's grace in our lives. Yeah. Maybe, maybe active passivity or passive activity, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Are we done? Okay, let me pray. Father, bless us as we go our way. We are thankful that you have implanted into our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit the gift of faith. And I pray that you'll give us a faithful Lord that will persevere and hold on to the end. That Lord will believe that what you say is true and that the gospel promises are true that you've given us in your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.